Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello, everyone. My name is Nick, and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure, where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together... We can make a difference. Hi, and welcome to Nerdville. Population, me. I'm Anne, and this is Verbal Diorama. So welcome to episode six and the movie that showed the true colours of repression in the 1950s American dream. So what have I been up to recently? Well, I've been watching Avengers Endgame. I've been digesting Avengers Endgame and reliving Avengers Endgame. Um, I've also guested on Offscreen Babble for Avengers Endgame, which was honestly just as epic and awesome as the movie Avengers Endgame. And it turns out just as long as Avengers Endgame. Um, But I had such a great time chatting to Sade and I highly recommend checking out that episode. If only because I reference sliding doors in a Marvel movie. And I think, like the chances of winning against Thanos, I'm the only one out of the 14 million other podcasts that will be covering Avengers Endgame to probably mention sliding doors. But I digress. Um, so the Twitter poll choice for episode six is, of course, 1998's Pleasantville. It won against the movie Passengers. Um, the final tally was, I think, 74 to 26. Um, so I'm going to put Passengers back on the list to be tackled another time. Only because although I will agree it's not a great movie, it has problems, Um, I think it has great ambitions. It also has literally two of the hottest stars in Hollywood at the time. And it also had a lot riding on its success. Um, Honestly, though, um, I think for this, Pleasantville was the best choice. Um, It's a movie that seems to be more socially potent today than it ever was back in 1998. It's a movie that uses the metaphor of inserting colour into a predominantly black and white movie to represent change and also the fear of change. Um, On the surface, it's the story of a pair of teenagers who upset a fictional world, but underneath it has so many layers of deeper meaning, a bit like Shrek and his onion layers. Um, What is a perfect life? Who are we if all we do is follow the status quo? So it's really a story about being more than what other people might want you to be. 
So bearing that in mind, let's talk a little bit about Pleasantville. There's a place where life is simple. People are perfect. And everything is black and white. Honey, I'm home. It's a place that's as far from reality as we can imagine. How about some marshmallow rice squares? Those are swell. But maybe it's a lot closer see that. than we think. What happened? I'm not sure. <gasps> Look at me. I'm pasty. Morning, kids. Better get a move on or you'll be late for school. I put blueberries in them just the way you like. We're in Pleasantville? No! We're supposed to be in school. We're supposed to be in color? What's all the commotion? Who's that? I didn't think you'd want to come here until we'd been pinned for a little while. You can pin me anytime you want to. Or maybe I should just pin you. She's a fine young woman. She would never do anything for us to be concerned about. <sighs> From the creator of Big and Dave. What are you doing to these people? You can't do this to them. You're messing with their whole universe. Maybe it needs to be messed with David. Comes a story about the loss of innocence. I brought you something from the library. Gee whiz. And the power of change. What's outside of Pleasantville? There's some places where the road keeps going. Shouldn't cover that up. What is that? What's going on? It's rain. Honey, I'm home. New Line Cinema presents... Look at my face. It'll go away. I don't want it to go away. Something is happening to our town. Jeff Daniels, William H. Macy, Joan Allen, Reese Witherspoon, and Toby Maguire. So what's going to happen now? I don't know. Pleasantville. What are we going to do, Bob? Well, we're safe for now. Thank goodness we're in a bowling alley. So, spoiler warning, obviously, the synopsis for Pleasantville. David and his twin sister Jennifer live very different high school social lives. Jennifer is shallow and extroverted. David is introverted and spends most of his time watching television. One evening, while their mother is away, they fight over the TV. Jennifer wants to watch a concert on MTV, but David wants to watch a marathon of Pleasantville, a black and white 1950s sitcom about the idyllic Parker family. During the fight, the remote control breaks and the TV can't be turned on manually. A mysterious TV repairman shows up, quizzes David about Pleasantville, then gives him a strange remote control. The repairman leaves and David and Jennifer resume fighting. However, they're transported into the Parker's black and white Pleasantville living room. David tries to reason with the repairman, with whom he communicates through the Parker's television, but he succeeds only in chasing him away. David and Jennifer must now pretend they are Bud and Mary Sue Parker, the son and daughter on the show. David and Jennifer witness the wholesome nature of the town, such as a group of firemen rescuing a cat from a tree. David tells Jennifer they must stay in character and not disrupt the lives of the town's citizens, who do not notice any difference between Bud and Mary Sue and David and Jennifer. To keep the show's plot, Jennifer dates a boy from high school but has sex with him, a concept unknown to him and everyone else in the town. Slowly, Pleasantville begins changing from black and white to colour, including flowers and the faces of people who've experienced bursts of emotion and personal transformation. David introduces Mr Johnson, owner of the burger joint slash soda fountain where Bud works, 
to colourful modern art via a book from the library, sparking in him an interest in painting. Johnson and Betty Parker fall in love, causing her to leave home, throwing George Parker, Bud and Mary Sue's father into confusion. The only people who remain unchained are the town fathers, led by the mayor, Big Bob, who sees the changes eating at the values of Pleasantville. They resolve to do something about their increasingly independent wives and rebellious children. As the townsfolk become more colourful, a ban on coloured people is initiated in public venues. Eventually, a riot is touched off by a nude painting of Betty, painted by Mr Johnson, on the window of his soda fountain. The soda fountain is destroyed, books are burned and the people who are coloured are harassed in the street. As a reaction, the town fathers announce rules preventing people from visiting the library, playing loud music or using paint other than black, white or grey. In protest, David and Mr Johnson paint a colourful mural on a brick wall, depicting their world, prompting their arrest. Brought to trial in front of the town, David and Mr Johnson defend their actions, arousing enough anger and indignation in Big Bob that the mayor becomes coloured as well. Having seen Pleasantville change irrevocably, Jennifer stays to finish her education, while David uses the remote control to return to the real world. And so that's the general plot of Pleasantville. The movie was written, produced and directed by Gary Ross. Um, he was also the writer on Big and Dave. So he's known for very much for his comedy movies sort of as a writer. And, and this was actually his directorial debut, which is pretty impressive considering how great the movie is. Gary Ross would actually go on to direct Tobey Maguire in Seabiscuit and he also directed the first Hunger Games movie, uh, which is a movie that I actually enjoy very much and have a lot of time for. And most recently, he directed Ocean's 8, which, again, is another movie that I enjoyed very much and have a lot of time for. I want to have a bit of a quick mention about the cast because the... Two leads of the movie, uh, Tobey Maguire and Reese Witherspoon, were kind of very much up and coming at that point. Um, obviously, Tobey Maguire um, would go on to make the hugely popular Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. But he was quite a big rising star in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, post Spider-Man, um, he's not really kind of been around that much um he's not really been in sort of many big movies i think the most recent big movie he was in was um the great gatsby but obviously reese witherspoon she starred in this sort of quite early on in her career i think before this she'd done quite a few movies i think the biggest of which was probably kind of the thriller fear which was with mark Wahlberg. but you know reese witherspoon goes on to be reese witherspoon um she's a lady who I've always been really fascinated by her acting choices um, because after this, this was obviously a really interesting choice for her. Um, after this, she goes on to make uh, films like Election, Cruel Intentions, uh, Legally Blonde and Walk the Line, um, which was the biopic of Johnny Cash, which won her the Best Actress Oscar at the 78th Academy Awards. Also sort of starring in this movie, you've got William H. Macy as George Parker, uh, Joan Allen, who is absolutely perfectly cast as Betty Parker, and Jeff Daniels, who plays Bill Johnson, sort of the love interest of Betty. Um, and um, 
with regards to kind of the other kind of young performers in the role, the most what prevalent, I think, was probably the late Paul Walker, um, who has sort of a fairly minor role as Skip, who's Mary Sue's love interest. So we're talking about a movie that is initially set in 1998, but is primarily set in a fictional 1950s world. Um, And 1950s is interesting because it's typically portrayed as idyllic and wholesome, like a a golden age of post-war celebration, um, where tradition clashed with liberation. Um, It was also uh, the baby boomer generation. So rather ironically, people were having lots of sex in real life to create the baby boomer babies. Um, Whereas the TV of the 50s is generally seen as very chaste. um, And, you know, you don't really see that sort of thing in these movies. Whilst the 50s in real life wasn't the American dream, you know, people kind of flocked to see these sort of TV shows, um, things like Leave It to Beaver and Father Knows Best, because they portrayed this ideal family. It was like it was pure escapism. And again, something that David in the movie is is trying to do. He's trying to escape from his reality into this picture-perfect world because he thinks it's actually better. Um, and in Pleasantville, tradition dictates the lives of the residents. The husbands are always hardworking and the head of the household. Mothers are immaculately presented and always have dinner on the table. Children are well-behaved and doing well at school. Father knows best, mother does the chores, and the children get their homework done. It's very much a cookie-cutter version of what a nuclear family and a perfect home should be. Because everything about Pleasantville is, in inverted commas, perfect. The weather's always 22 degrees Celsius, 72 degrees Fahrenheit. The sun shines every day. The sports teams always win. The neighbours always greet you. Boys and girls chastely date by grabbing a malt at the local diner. And after time, if you're lucky, it's upgraded to hand-holding at a local beauty spot. Young boys are courteous and chivalrous, and young girls are shy and modest. There's no disagreement, no swearing, no protests, no war. Everyone has a swell time. But Pleasantville is also seriously repressed. There are no emotions Husbands and wives don't ever experience love or sex or passion. Sports teams never lose, so there's no joy of winning or sadness at losing. Because Pleasantville is so pleasant, there's no anger or loss or frustration or fear. Literally every emotion is repressed. And outwardly, this is seen as being a positive thing. You know, showing that outward facade of everything is perfect in my life. But as we all know especially with the rise of social media, not everything is always as it seems. And that perfect facade always eventually crumbles because no one can keep up appearances for long. And the catalyst for all these emotions, this reversal of repression, is brought on by the appearance of David and Jennifer. David, who himself is repressing his emotions from his broken home by ignoring his real life and fantasising about life in Pleasantville, initially wants what Pleasantville can give him. He sees a mother and a father who appear to love their children, Bird and Mary Sue, but once he's stuck in Pleasantville, he soon realises that they have no clue what love actually is. 
Love isn't an action. It's not a plate stacked high of pancakes every morning. Love is an emotion. And they don't know how to deal with that. They can't deal with that. So whilst David is initially thrilled about the thought of life in Pleasantville, Jennifer is appalled because she's pasty. She has to wear uncomfortable clothing and she has to act demure because that's what's expected of her. Whilst Jennifer appears to be the one who starts the change in Pleasantville, it's actually David. Because when David is talking to Skip at the gym, Skip mentions dating Mary Sue. In the show, Bud would agree. But David as Bud actually disagrees with Skip dating Mary Sue because he knows Mary Sue is actually Jennifer and coincidentally knows what Jennifer is like. This is the initial act that starts the chain of events, which is ironic considering what David knows about Pleasantville. Jennifer, as Mary Sue, goes against her character's traits and introduces sex to the young people of Pleasantville, thereby introducing the love and passion they've never been allowed to feel before, but also the other emotions that go with love and passion, like betrayal, jealousy and fear. Betty Parker is outwardly a happy homemaker, but soon realises there are changes in Pleasantville and wants to know more about why so many kids are going to Lover's Lane. So Jennifer, as Mary Sue, explains the birds and the bees to her on-screen mother. Betty and George, with their twin beds, have never actually had sex, and so she doesn't even know what it is. Betty, with her newfound information, goes to the bathtub and masturbates for the first time ever. And this act alone sets the tree in front of the house on fire in probably one of the best-known visuals from the movie. It also invokes one of the most comedic parts of the movie where Bud, David as Bud, goes to the fire station and shouts... And that's what gets the firefighters to actually come and tackle the blaze because firefighters in Pleasantville don't actually know what a fire is. Betty's sexual awakening causes a few things. Firstly, it's the first thing she's ever actually done for herself, but it also causes her to feel shame in the colour showing in her face, again highlighting her repression. She knows it would upset George but she's wanted and deserves love for so long and she finally finds that love in Mr Johnson, the local diner owner. A man who discovers his love of art and painting through working with David as Bud. One of my favourite scenes in the movie is actually when Bud puts the grey makeup on his mother's face so that she can be seen in front of her husband George. It shows this remarkable bond between TV mother and fake TV son. And it's a bond that David doesn't have with his real mother. And also the lengths he'll actually go to help her. The most interesting part of the scene is the makeup used in real life was actually green. Because green in black and white looks like white skin tones. So Toby Maguire was actually putting green makeup on Joan Allen's face. And it was then digitally manipulated to show as black and white. This pays off later when a fully coloured Betty 
is harassed by a monocolored gang of men. And David, as Bud, challenges them, fighting for the rights of his on-screen mother, which goes against that introverted, shy nature and gives him the same level of colour once he changes. So George Parker, as the man of the house and member of the local Chamber of Commerce, genuinely believes everything about his life is perfect and pleasant. He doesn't know any better. He doesn't understand the change. And most importantly, he fears the change. He's more concerned about the lack of his dinner than the whereabouts of his wife. And he discusses it with his friends at the bowling alley. And dinner is the most important loss to him. And it's that loss of tradition in his home. Because tradition dictates that you have dinner on the table as soon as you get home. George is the last of the family to change colour. And he only does so when he feels the emotion when his son Bud, David, defends himself in court. The movie uses metaphors, some of them blatant, some of them less so. But the general themes of the movie are, of course, the fear of change, the opposition of traditionalist values and quite blatantly racism with some sexism and misogyny thrown in for good measure. For a movie to use terminology related to the civil rights movement, such as the signs that say no coloureds, without actually containing any people of colour in the movie, you can kind of see the parallel they're trying to use because socio-political repression is still repression. But considering the movie tries to make this point really hit home, it doesn't actually seem to follow through with it in a satisfactory way for its version of, in inverted commas, coloured people. Because in the end, everyone turns technicolour. Everyone becomes the same. And I don't think that's something that can be said for the way some black people in America might be feeling you know, either back in 1998 or now. And it's not for me to put words in their mouths. Rather ironically, I'm just going from the things I see on TV. Whilst the movie isn't afraid to attempt to tackle racism, it never feels like it fully commits to the cause. Where the movie does succeed, however, is the attempt to show the liberation of the women of Pleasantville. Women who are repressed emotionally, they can't show emotion. Physically, you know, all they do is serve their husbands and children. Mentally, they can't think for themselves. They don't know how. As well as the most blatant, obvious liberation, that of sex and sexuality. The husbands in Pleasantville aren't really villainous. George Parker is never a bad guy. He just fears change. And that includes the changes within his own family. He was the head of the household. But with a wife who thinks for herself does what she wants and may or may not love him, he doesn't know how to cope with that. That's really his only crime. He does try to learn and to evolve, but the specifics of Betty's story still ring true for a lot of women in repressed societies still today, in 2019, where they have little to no rights. The use of colour is probably my favourite thing in the whole movie and probably one of the main things people remember about the movie it's not the first time colour against black and white has been used to depict change or highlight something. It was seen, first of all, in The Wizard of Oz, where the glorious land of Oz was rich in colour against the black and white reality of Dorothy's real world existence. And it was, of course, famously used in Schindler's List to show the little girl in the red coat, effectively showing the horrors 
of Nazi occupation and the loss of innocent life during the Holocaust. Pleasantville was actually filmed in colour and then 163,000 frames of 35mm footage were scanned and digitised in order for the purpose of removing or manipulating colours to selectively desaturate and contrast adjust digitally. This was done on state-of-the-art spirit data scene scanners, one of which was actually found in a basement, would you believe, in Culver City, California. This means that those first pops of colour were actually primarily digitally adjusted in the rest of the frame to be black and white and not the reverse. It was the first movie that used this technology, which is called Digital Intermediate or DI, and the effect is still striking today, 21 years after the movie premiered. At the time of its release in 1998, it contained the most digital effects in film. And that's a feat that was surpassed by George Lucas's Star Wars Episode 1, The Phantom Menace, the following year. But unlike The Phantom Menace, which uses effects simply because it's set a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and because it can, Pleasantville's effects serve an important purpose to the narrative of the story. It simply can't be told without using colour. Colour is used to depict freedom from repression in many ways, from the single red rose as Skip and Mary Sue leave Lover's Lane, to the bursts of colour in the school and town. Pleasantville does an excellent job of using colour to depict that change. And whilst the introduction to sex in the world of Pleasantville that starts the colours showing, it's not just sex. It's change and the freedom of choice. Jennifer, as Mary Sue, is initially upset that she's still in black and white after having, and I quote, more sex than anyone. However, for her, sex wasn't her catalyst for change because that was already the person she was. It was actually turning down sex and choosing to study instead, which brought colour to her because she finally doesn't care what anyone else thinks of her and starts to get enjoyment and pleasure from education. She changes to the point that at the end she chooses to stay in Pleasantville to continue her education. A choice that, honestly, I didn't understand the first time I watched it. But if you think about it, her choice is actually sound. She feels like she wouldn't be taken seriously back in her world or have the chance to go to college based on her real world grades. But here in Pleasantville, she's a good student who can get into a great university. What that means for her isn't clear, uh, but in a movie about the right to have a choice, it's important Jennifer gets hers. I do feel sorry for her poor mother in the real world, though, because once he goes back, how does David explain where his twin sister is? Uh, mom, she's in the TV. I asked for some comments uh, from the Twitterverse about Pleasantville, and one person who came to me was... Kristen from So I'm Watching This Show and she told me she's a massive fan of the movie and had I known that earlier then I probably would have invited her on to talk about it because she has actually a lot to say and she kindly put some thoughts down and sent them over. So here are Kristen's thoughts on the movie. One of my favourite things about Pleasantville is all the different ways the characters turn from black and white to colour specifically the differences between Toby Maguire and Reese Witherspoon's characters. When David and Jennifer find themselves in the world of David's favourite show, Jennifer sets out to awaken the whole town, mainly sexually. We see her sleep with Paul Walker's character Skip, which enables him to see colours for the first time. David, on the other hand, doesn't try to awaken anything. 
He wants the town to stay the same. But as things start to change, he allows himself to explain books and music and art to his peers, which in turn changes them. As the whole town starts to gain colour and the residents realise they've been repressed the whole time, Jennifer and David have to figure out why they aren't changing. And what they discover is my favourite thing about the movie. Jennifer, who is a wonderfully sexually awakened character throughout the movie, but perhaps uses her sexuality a little too much to get what she wants, wonders why all the sex she's having hasn't changed her. When David tells her maybe it's not the sex that does it, it starts her thinking. And when Skip comes to her window while she's doing schoolwork and wants to have sex again, she rebuffs him in no uncertain terms and continues reading. When she wakes up, she's in full colour. It's such a wonderful moment for the character who realises that she can be something more than just sex and that her value lies in her whole person and not just what she can give a man and it inspires her to stay in the world of Pleasantville and pursue her education, something real-world Jennifer never would have done. David's story is similarly deep and no less emotional. In the real world, we see him judge his mother for trying to find love again, specifically with the men she chooses. He's not very caring towards her and he doesn't have much to do with her. In Pleasantville, he gets very close to Joan Allen's Betty, to the point where he helps her cover up the fact that she's no longer black and white, and gets her together with Jeff Daniels' Bill. When he defends Betty in front of the rioters in town, David finally changes. His coming to the defence of a mother figure was his trigger, and so when he gets home to the real world and finds his mother heartbroken once again, instead of being judgy and leaving her alone, he comforts her and spends time with her. It's a remarkable journey and shows that even David, the hero of the story, needed Pleasantville in order to grow as a person. So thank you to Kristen from So I'm Watching This Show for her thoughts. There was also uh, a few other comments from Twitter. Not as many as for Sky Captain, but we, we value quality, not just quantity on Verbal Diorama. So at Phil the Bear said, I can tell you that it's the film that I met my now wife watching and I still have the ticket stub. That is so cute. That is so adorable. I can't believe you still have the ticket stub from that movie. That is awesome. At at the Flix Pod said, I can't top what Phil had to say. However, for me, it's a message of being true to who you are is so important. The wonderful performances and cinematography are just exceptional. Your inclusion of a film which has now been forgotten has encouraged me to revisit it. Which, honestly, is all I could ever want from this podcast is for people to take the films that I look at and think, I want to actually watch that film. To me, that's awesome. At Vincent Asher said, This movie has many levels, from the simple colour change to the idea of women's equality. I like to think the message of difference is good and accept change. So, thank you to everyone who gave me their thoughts of Pleasantville. Um, How... Can you summarise Pleasantville? Well, I think the point of the movie is simple. There's no right way to live your life. You just have to live it. We shouldn't accept what we're given. We should fight for what we deserve. We shouldn't be afraid to show our emotions, to dream big, to go against what society or family or the world expects of us. Pleasantville is more than just a comedy drama set in the 1950s. It says more about how we should be than we think, but also how we shouldn't be. We should accept, we should embrace, and most importantly, we should love. Thank you for listening to this episode of Verbal Diorama. Every time I put out an episode, the reaction is always so positive and it really warms the cockles of my heart. And 
Honestly, I love to hear your thoughts on Pleasantville. My next episode will be out in two weeks because I'm actually sticking to a schedule now or at least trying to. And the topic of that episode has already been decided. And that episode will be about the cabin in the woods. If you like this episode, I've also done episodes on Titan AE, Captain Marvel, Dread, Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow. And they can be downloaded wherever you get your podcasts from. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Verbal Diorama. You can email me general hellos, feedback or suggestions, verbaldiorama at gmail.com. If you like what I do and you want to give me a great review, you can do so on iTunes and I'd really appreciate that. Or if you want to buy me a coffee, which honestly I pretty much run on, you can do so at ko-fi.com slash verbal diorama. Also, I have recently built my website. There's not a lot on there. It's very small, but it's there. So um, my website is just simply verbaldiorama.com. I'm hoping to at least try and keep the blog up to date and all of the episodes of the show will be linked on there. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. And gee whiz, you guys are super swell.